0: We see a neuron as a computer in its own right, but maybe even a supercomputer, because individual cells have their own intelligence, and there is a lot of work showing that a single cell has, um, is able to perform quite
1: complicated cognitive tasks. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. This episode continues my series on consciousness. Are we just biological robots? Following on from my exciting interview last week with quantum biophysicist Dr. Luca Turin, I dig further into competing theories of quantum mind or consciousness mediated by quantum mechanics, the physics underlying the very small. The famous Sir Roger Penrose and his partner Stuart Hameroff have proposed the orchestrated OR theory. This theory posits a modification of what is known to be the incompleteness of quantum mechanics that underlies again half of physics. They argue that consciousness arises from Moments of wave-function collapse that are objectively linked to certain aspects of quantum superposition. So they're postulating an update to the theory of quantum mechanics, which is based specifically on quantum mechanics being linked to consciousness. So it's a physical theory of, of consciousness related to quantum mechanics. They further argue that biology has evolved a mechanism to orchestrate these wave function collapses in tiny subcellular structures called microtubules, and they present some some criteria for, for this to happen, and experiments are ongoing to determine whether that's real or not. My guest today has been doing experiments in the lab to determine if physical processes in subcellular organelles called microtubules respond to anesthetics and then may potentially be linked to this altered quantum mechanical theory of the mind. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Love to hear from you. Uh, Come check out my website at www.therationalview.ca. Professor Jack Kaczynski obtained his PhD in condensed matter physics in 1983 from the University of Calgary. From 1983 to 1988, he was a faculty member at the Department of Physics of the Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. He moved to the University of Alberta in 1988 as an assistant professor. Between 1990 to 1993, he was an associate and then full professor at the Department of Physics. Between 2005 and 2020, he has held the prestigious Allard Chair in Experimental Oncology, at the Cross Cancer Institute, where he leads an interdisciplinary computational drug discovery group. He is also a fellow of the National Institute for Nanotechnology of Canada. He has held visiting professorship and research positions in China, Germany, France, Israel, Denmark, Belgium, and Switzerland. He's widely published in the scientific literature, providing frequent invited talks on his groundbreaking work. Professor Chizinski, welcome to The Rational View. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Could you tell me a little bit about your background? You're from Poland originally, I take it? Uh, how did you yes, come to I, Canada? I was
0: Yeah, I was born and raised in Poland, and uh, I did my undergraduate studies there. And then uh, uh, it so happened that there was a lot of political, social turmoil in Poland um, around the uh, 1980s. And... Um, mm-hmm. I decided to leave that country because there was, at that time, actually, not much uh, future for me, and so I went to Canada to do my graduate studies, and and I stayed.
1: Was this it's, while it was uh, the Soviet Union that you left?
0: Well, I didn't. I never actually visited the Soviet Union, but it was the threat of the Soviet Union encroaching on on Poland that it was at that mm-hmm. time part of the Warsaw uh, Pact. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about your current research work? You've, you've obviously very broad disciplines here. You've got physics, you've got oncology, you've got nanotechnology. Tell me how you, how, what your career path was and how you got into these diverse topics. Yeah.
0: I, I think it's, um, first of all, I would like to say that uh, a degree in physics is uh, equipping students with a lot of um, tool, tools in the toolbox, scientific toolbox, uh, allowing you to to study different things and and make progress in in different areas and so so that happened with me i started with theoretical physics and then gradually moved towards biology uh which was always of interest to me but but until more recently maybe the last two decades or so biology wasn't um a field where you could do a lot of quantitative work. And I, as a physicist, I like to understand mechanisms. I like to develop mathematical models and uh, make predictions about the behavior of biological systems on this basis. So so that led me naturally to some, initially to some areas of the life sciences where you can uh, apply f- physical tools, uh, which actually the first field uh, in this area that I um, I studied was pharmacokinetics. So so this is a a, a field of study that um, informs you about the fate of the drug in the human body, how it distributes itself, where it goes, you know, how it interacts with uh, different cells, how it's metabolized, excreted, and so on. And and that um, that was very interesting because I was able to use a lot of thoroughly sophisticated mathematical tools, including. Um, you know, nonlinear uh, dynamics,
1: fractal kinetics, and things like that. Fractal kinetics is a word I've never heard before. <laughs> there, there you go. That's a sound. Well, it's <laughs> that's actually, very interesting.
0: Yeah, quite simple. It's, um, you know, um, it's about molecules which uh, diffuse or propagate, spread out uh, on um on surfaces and in structures which are fractal, which means self-similar. And it so happens that the human vasculature is fractal. It, just like, you know, branches mm-hmm. of the tree, leaves, and so on, they have this self-similar nature, so does human vasculature. And therefore, if you want to study the fate of a drug molecule in the human body, that helps you understand how this um, molecule, or group of molecules, you know, yeah. propagates throughout the, the various organs over time. So, okay. so that was the very first area. But, but then other areas opened up gradually to, to more sort of mathematical, physical considerations, and that included proteins. Okay. You know, proteins are very important for uh, human health and, and also play a major role in development of numerous diseases. And And so I studied some of the most important proteins such as uh, tubulin and actin and motor proteins. Uh, the first two play a role in cell division, uh, very important roles in cell division, cell motility, movement of cells. And motor proteins are basically the muscles of the cells. They, they also transport material across the cell from point A to point B. So these are, as you can imagine, very physically oriented uh, processes. And, and so I studied that, and and one of these proteins, tubulin and microtubules, are at the core of um, the question of how cells divide, and and that of course is one step removed from cancer, and, and when we want to stop the proliferation of cancer, you know, the first question is how do we stop them from undergoing cell division, and. And therefore, mm-hmm. microtubules and tubulin become natural targets for drug discovery. And that led me to this position in the Department of Oncology, which I held for 15 years. And and uh, my group was developing um, antimitotic chemotherapeutic agents, um, one of which is now in clinical okay. trial. So so I, I, I felt I accomplished my mission because, because we actually achieved something which is tangible. I don't know if it'll be it will be eventually used, um, you know, in a widespread um, context, or maybe it's just a trial that that doesn't go to the next step. Mm-hmm. But some humans are being tested. You know, patients with uh, bladder cancer uh, are currently
1: being Amazing. tested in the clinical trials. And how long did it take to get to that stage of, of clinical trials? How much research went into that? Yes. Uh
0: that's a very good Hardly. question, actually, because when I moved from physics to oncology, I, I started by looking at other case studies, you know, uh, other drugs which were developed by big pharma and, and medium-sized pharma, and, and until then, which was, uh, I started in 2005, um, most of it was really by um, standard sort of trial and error methods, empirical studies, and, um, and it took typically between 12 and 15 years and about um, the cost of development is about, on the order, of $1 billion for each entity. And so I was very arrogant. I thought, uh, well, you know, I might be smarter than that, and we can do it faster and cheaper. And it turned out that we we were able to do it cheaper, but not faster. It took uh, almost exactly (laughs) 15 years uh, Mm, to mm. develop this new drug, actually, it's one. Uh, one drug, which is called CCI zero zero one, CCI stands for the Cross Cancer Institute, which is where the Department of Oncology uh, is hu- housed in at the University of Alberta in Edmonton.
1: So, wow!
0: So, so much well, for congratulations! Eyewitness.
1: I hope that I hope that uh, that pans out and has a, a tangible effect on on cancers uh, worldwide. That's great. So, your work has now progressed to um you're involved in what i would say that theories of mind and consciousness the the work you're doing now recently that you've been talking about um touches on quantum theories of mind and specifically the orchestrated objective reduction theory of penrose and Hameroff. can you describe a little bit about what how you got into that line of work
0: yes yes indeed well, that, that was more or less in parallel uh, with, with my other research and never really my main uh, main focus. It was, until recently, kind of on the periphery, a hobby of sorts. And partly because it's very hard to get funding for research in, in this area. But I got really interested and it started with um, a very momentous uh, conference, uh, momentous event, in 1991 there was a conference held in Tucson, Arizona jointly with um, with um, Stuart Hameroff and in fact oh, Al wow. Scott. <laughs> That's the Al Scott that I mentioned to you. <laughs> so Alwyn
1: Scott, you said?
0: Alwyn Scott, yes. And, and, Amazing. Uh, and Steve Rasmussen. And We're all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this conference was, um, was called What is Life? And and, you know, that was actually, uh, for me, a transition from physics to, to, uh, to biophysics. Uh, but at the end of this conference, Stuart Hameroff asked the question, uh, and he said that the next conference should be about something even more mysterious than life. And he said the next conference should be about what is consciousness. And, and this started wow. from 1992, I believe, maybe three, I don't remember exactly the date, a series of annual conferences On the science of consciousness. And that's the one that you referred to, I guess, um, which occurred um, um, a week ago. Yeah, exactly a week ago, I think, Mm -hmm. and last week. Mm -hmm. And so that's one in a series of more than 20 conferences on the science of consciousness. And I participated in many of these conferences and uh, got to know uh, Stuart Hameroff uh, very well, as well as Roger Penrose, and, um, and get interested in in this field, and especially because the uh, the, the main um, the main object of studies in this case is also uh, the same as I studied for cancer research, namely microtubules. So microtubules play a major role in all eukaryotic cells, cells which have a, a nucleus, and they do different things in different cells. Uh, Including cell division, which I mentioned, but also in neurons, which don't divide, they they form very regular architectures, um, parallel bundles with interconnections that remind me and others of of computer architectures. and And Stuart Hammer wrote a very prescient book called uh, Ultimate Computing, which was published in 1987. and And in this book, he outlined his vision. Uh, which actually predated the work with Roger Penrose uh, about uh, c- consciousness being the substrate of consciousness, the the, the bottom level of conscious uh, ac- experience being based on um, microtubules and neurons. and And so I got really a- a- intrigued by this, having spent quite a bit of time <laughs> studying microtubules and anyway that is now 30 years later. <laughs> we're still doing it. <laughs>
1: Wow, that, that's amazing. So, so microtubules, they, these are proteins in the cell that look a little bit like wires effectively. They're, they're structural elements. And um, the theory is that these things could be doing processing. So the, the, I would say the accepted consensus view is that the, process, the basic processing element of the brain is the neuron. Uh, and neurons signaling between each other um, have been simulated in computer science to make neural networks, which have art- which are the basis of artificial intelligence models right now, and they seem to work in sort of processing ways. The theory of Hammeroff that you're describing in Penrose posits that even inside each cell there is... Significantly more processing going on than one might expect in these in these microtubule proteins uh, based on tubulin molecules. Could you maybe summarize the the orchestrated objective reduction theory at some sort of a high level for for the sure. layman kind of?
0: Yes, of course. So so let me let me back, uh, uh, backtrack a little bit and and go back to what you said about neurons and you know we have. Almost 100 billion neurons in the human brain, on average. So, so this is massive. Uh, and, and as you said correctly, in, in uh, current neuroscience, the neuron is considered to be the fundamental element of all the cognitive pro- processes, right? But I think it's it's a it's a major insult to to the neuron uh, because um, because the neurons are very complicated and they have a lot of complex structure, which must be for a reason. Just looking at this, it makes you wonder about it, and I'll come to it in a second. But on top of that, there is, on average, about 10,000 interacting neurons with one neuron. So so it's not just a lot of neurons, but a lot of communicating neurons with, with other neurons. And so that gives you uh, mm. a humongous uh, power. And, and these are not passive elements, you know, neurons, um, behave differently depending on their uh, location in the brain, depending on their usage activity. You know, this is called reinforced learning or long-term potentiation. So, if particular neurons are involved in a lot of activities, let's say you learn a foreign language, uh, then you reinforce these interactions and sometimes even recruit new neurons to interact with those. So, this is called synaptic plasticity. So, so you couldn't really think about it as a bunch of wires with switches, you know, binary switches on and off. That's more or less what, what projects such as the human brain project in Switzerland um, are envisaging. Uh, we go deeper, uh, you know, we meaning Stuart Hameroff and Penrose and, and other uh, people in this group. We see a neuron as a computer in its own right, but maybe even a supercomputer. Because individual cells have their own intelligence, and there is a lot of work showing that a single cell has um, is able to perform quite complicated um, cognitive tasks, information processing, reaction, uh, and and I can point to to the work of uh, Günter Albrecht Bueller at the University at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. He actually has a, a major body of work called cell intelligence, indicating that ind- individual cells have mechanisms of perceiving environment, reacting to the environment that they are in and interacting with other cells. And under controlled conditions, he demonstrated this. So that's number one. Number two, I also would like to point, uh, point out the importance of the work of Mike Levin at Tufts University in, in Boston, who, uh, who has been working on um, reprogramming cells um, via uh, electrical and electromagnetic means, uh, turning stem cells into different types of cells by electrical signaling, and also l- looking at um, the ability of individual single cells to have memory and uh, and uh, you know um, very primitive organisms without the nervous system um, being able to store memories and... Wow. React. I want to say that the brain is obviously one of the most complicated structures in the universe, but, but you need to look deeper into uh, not just the structure of the brain, but the structure of neurons, which are, by the way, not the only cells in the brain, but th- the ones which are excitable, that you know, react to action potentials and electrical propagation... Of signals and that also brings physics to it because you know before we go into quantum physics there is also a lot a lot of electromagnetic physics which takes place in, um, in neurons and in, in the brain. so so now back to your question. so, so if we assume that the neuron is a non-trivial non-passive but dynamic um, computing element, then the question is what is computing where, where is this computing taking place? and and um we know for a fact that signals propagate along neurons axons right so axons are the long protrusions that that have membranes of course and 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 membranes have ion channels in them so they actually pass ions in and out and pass Mm -hmm. uh, propagate voltage changes uh in other words electrical signals at fairly Impressive speeds on the order of about a meter per second. So that's maybe um, not—it's um, faster than chemical signaling, but it's not um, instantaneous. And I think if you were to to use this, it's not a wire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Much much slower than electrical signals in uh, in electrical devices and so on. So so the in order to explain some of the. Wow more, you know, um, impressive feats of human achievement in terms of, for example, you know, tennis players uh, serving um, tennis balls flying at 190 miles an hour and the opponent is able to perfectly return it, return that serve. I I don't think you can explain it with this kind of, you know, signal propagation uh, and, uh, and of, of course, delays as well. So there is something else going on. I'm just building a case for for something more impressive than just, you know, um, a bunch of ions moving up and down the axon. And also uh, saying that the neuron itself has this complicated architecture and why. Part of it is, of course, for material transport, mm-hmm. you have to provide nutrients and, and build neurotransmitters inside and pass them to the synaptic buttons and mm-hmm. stuff like that. but. But what, what Stuart Hameroff and Roger Penrose later on um, noted is that microtubules would be ideal substrates for some deeper computation, a deeper level computation, and, and perhaps even uh, non-algorithmic computation, which would involve quantum states. And, and that's where the story of OrcoR or begins. So Stuart Hameroff contacted Roger Penrose because Penrose wrote this famous book, *Shadows of the Mind*. So, so in this book, uh, Penrose proposed um, a quantum uh, a quantum nature of human consciousness, and 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 gave a lot of examples why it should be quantum and non-algorithmic. Many examples where um, he he gave many examples where you couldn't explain the outcome of human cognition with a simple algorithm that could be programmed by you know present-day computers and and that led him to believe that this must be a, a form of a quantum wave function a wave function superpositions of wave functions in the brain which when we actualize a thought for example they collapse and become classical you know triggers mechanisms that lead to some action so that there was kind of a general, very, um, philosophical, I would say concept, um, that Penrose mm-hmm. mm-hmm. proposed. And then I think Stuart Hammer have read the book and he said, well, I, actually I know, uh, how this could be happening. And, and, and Stuart Hammer is a, um, an anesthesi- practicing anesthesiologist. And, and he wondered about this question for all his professional life. And, uh, he came to the conclusion that the best candidate for a quantum information processing would be neuronal microtubules. Because of the regular structure, this is really the only structure um, um, which has multifunctional um, properties, and also uh, uh, the center of neuronal architecture, the center of cell division, and performing performing these amazing functions, but we still don't know, you know, how it comes about. What is causing these transformations and and so on? So, so they um, they started collaborating around 1993, I think, and wrote an, a number of papers, um, hypothesizing that microtubules actually are biological sites for uh, the the qu- quantum effects that might lead to cognitive processes, and etc. Um, now, of course, it's a hypothesis that has not been demonstrated experimentally until now, basically, when doing these experiments currently. Uh, so, so there's a lot of, of course, gaps in this. You know, before you, you reach the human brain, you have to, first of all, demonstrate that the building blocks, tubulin protein, satisfy these conditions to 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 uh, at least partially have quantum degrees of freedom then whether the second question is and and there were many objections to it um, and still are uh, this is in a liquid environment so very little exam very few examples in physics can uh, can be quoted where fluids have quantum properties or objects in a fluid environment because of the noisy dynamics, basically. The second thing is um, physiological temperature. You know, uh, we, we, we live at 36.6 mm-hmm. Celsius mm-hmm. under normal conditions and that's a very high temperature compared to physical uh, experiments under controlled conditions. And and thirdly, um, tubal in the, the protein, um, that makes makes up microtubule is is very large uh, compared to let's say quantum states in physics. So it, it its weight is equal to one hundred and ten thousand protons or hydrogen atoms. Um, so so you know so there's every statement I made is a question mark. Why this? Why this? Can this be true? You know and yeah. and so on. So and that's only within the neuron. How do we then go beyond? You know even if you <laughs> If you demonstrate that the microtubules and neurons are quantum objects, how do you go beyond? Uh, but I think we have to start. Somewhere. How do you link the quantum
1: to the classical? Exactly. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is the the, the criticism or the, the objection is that the body is too warm and quantum states are, you know, these are like a particle in a box, like Schrodinger's cat, if, if you jostle the box, the, the superposition falls apart and that's why people who are making quantum computers are trying to cool their qubits down very close to absolute zero so no thermal energy jostles them out of their superpositions. So y- you need um, some sort of magic to keep these things isolated in a, in a warm wet body uh, to do this quantum stuff and this, it, I think there's a lot of interesting research going on right now and people have realized that there are Quantum effects that happen in living cells. I think the original uh, demonstration was in photosynthesis. Uh, that they've actually found there are quantum effects that uh, are present and significant in certain cellular processes. And so this is this has kind of opened up a new field of research. I think.
0: Well, exactly. This is a perfect segue to 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 what I was going to say, namely, you know, photosynthesis was studied by physicists and quantum chemists and uh, about 12, 15 years ago, and that led to this quantum biology paradigm being established because it's one of several examples where you, you can see quantum physics at work in the biological environment, which is, as you said, it's warm, you know, uh, compared to physical systems uh, under controlled conditions. It's it's wet and it's it's kind of messy. But, but <laughs> the, yeah, so we, we don't know how to deal with messy systems. But, um, but in the case of photosynthesis in chlorophyll, for example, you have these uh, uh, reaction centers which absorb photons, quanta of light, and uh, create excited states of electrons, which are then collected and used. The high energy of these electrons is used to make other molecules, glucose in particular. So it's an incredibly intricate process that Mother Nature came up with to actually start all, all of life on Earth because, you know, it start, starts with photosynthesis. The energy of sunlight coming from uh, from the sun is, is used to build biomass. And that is the substrate for subsequent um, structure formation, you know, primitive animals and more and more advanced forms and so on. So everything starts with, photosynthesis, which is, a, as we now know, it's a quantum process. So so we looked at microtubules and tubulin, and we found that in tubulin, we, we see similar complexes uh, as in chlorophyll, uh, namely amino acids called tryptophans. They form a network of eight tryptophans in a single protein, whereas in the FMO system, so it's called the FMO, in chlorophyll there's seven uh, similar organic rings, and that led us to believe that this may be the, the culprit due to structural similarity, and uh, and then this arrangement is actually repeated uh, um, many thousands of times throughout the microtruple structure. So that may be uh, the beginning of a network, a quantum network, that communicates and shares quanta like it's happening in, chlorophyll, for example. And so now we have these experiments which are actually proving that. Um, although it's, mm-hmm. we don't have evidence yet that um, that it uh, this quantum excitation propagates or spreads over the entire microtubule. And a microtubule is the size of a cell, roughly speaking, uh, on the order of mi- tens tens of micrometers. So it's non-trivial mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the quantum Physics point of view, but we found, and and this is now something very recent in the last year, um, uh, we found that these, first of all, these quantum excitations of tryptophans, which are a bit like, like you know, the photons captured by leaves uh, in plants and some bacteria as well, um, they live actually even longer than uh, than quantum excitations in chlorophyll. Um, and the, in the quantum sort of biology paradigm, the uh, the breakthrough was to f- to find these excitations living up to about under a nanosecond, hundreds of picoseconds, uh, which, you know, it's that's really... A, that's very short. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But it's enough to do the biological function, to perform the biological function which is required. And we found in our experiments, okay. actually, two, two independent experiments, one on tryptophan fluorescence, that these excitations last even longer, five times or more, five nanoseconds or more. So we are actually um, confident that this process is longer lasting in tubulin than in the FMO system in chlorophyll. And even longer in another experiment, which is now being performed by the team of Professor Dogario at the University of Central Florida, they illuminate microtubules with visible light and observe re-emission of this light by microtubules, and this re-emission takes place over uh, hundreds of milliseconds to to seconds, actually. Which now we are bridging the gap to physiological uh, durations, right? Over a hundred milliseconds, typically the human being uh, re- uh, responds to stimuli on, on the order of a few hundreds of milliseconds. That's the typical response time to, to any sort of stimulus, uh, visual or audio or whatever. So so that would be quite interesting.
1: These experiments that are being done with light um, on microtubules, where you're shining light on it and you're measuring the time it takes for the light to be re-emitted by the tubules. And this is um, a proxy for the stability of certain quantum st- certain postulated quantum states, which is kind of a key to the theory that these microtubules may be uh, having um, coherent uh, quantum superpositions that may be associated with mind or consciousness. So so these experiments are doing real work trying to uh, determine whether these we don't know how these things stay uh, stable because theoretically they should be decohering very quickly on you know femtoseconds or or whatever, and and, and these things seem to be something in them is stable to timescales of picoseconds and nanoseconds, thousands of times longer than thermally random processes that would otherwise maintain their energy state. So this is this is really interesting and suggestive. Is it definitive that this is a quantum? issue from these experiments?
0: Not necessarily, but I think it's, it's, uh, we don't have a working model yet. But as you said, uh, you would expect this to be incredibly fast. Uh, you know, femtoseconds, picoseconds. By the way, I should say that tryptophan fluorescence requires ultraviolet. It's, it's a higher energy. It's, in, it's not visible to the human eye, but it's higher energy uh, photon. And the the re-emission is faster, but still, five nanoseconds. So it's more than required for photosynthesis, for example. Now, in the delayed luminescence, it's visible light, and it's these hundreds of milliseconds to seconds, which bridges the gap. And uh, I I want to say this is an exponential curve. So you have a bunch of photons emitted rapidly, but then some of them linger on. Uh, in other words, they create some excited state, maybe quantum, maybe not, and then they do something. They they stay in an excited state, maybe interact, maybe create a collective state, as was demonstrated for chlorophyll, and then they collapse down to the ground state. And by by doing so, they re, re- emit these uh, last group of photons. So we call the the, the first the fast emission is called super radiance, and and this the slow sub subradiance, and um so it's probably two different phenomena fast and slow Uh, the fast is probably just exciting the exciting you know uh, staying locally perhaps just one group um of molecules gets excited but the the slow one probably is creating a collective state which is trapped in that structure and that would be the best candidate for linking it to
1: some physiological functions Interesting. So, so this is storing energy in excited electronic states. The electron, the photons come in. The electrons are excited. They store this energy, and maybe some computation happens and redistributes it in some in some other fashion over extremely long periods compared to what one might, might otherwise expect.
0: And, um, and, and one more thing, if I may add, because this is important. We also in the Princeton experiment with uh, tryptophans, we also probed. The size of this collective state—it turns out that it's about 50 nanometers, which is uh, about uh, six dimers. Each dimer is eight nanometers long, so so that's also very significant because it's an order of magnitude greater than the FMO systems and, and chlorophyll. So so this, these states seem to be longer lived and larger spread in
1: uh, throughout this structure. And you've also done some work on looking at uh, how anesthetics affect this uh, state. Yes, yes.
0: So so this is the um, most direct link to to um, human physiology to the human brain because we know anesthetics uh, are an incredible group of molecules, they don't really have any common structural feature. So so but they they still uh, are able at some concentrations to turn off our consciousness reversibly, we still don't know the mechanism. Um, there are some you know, uh, hypotheses and all of the hypotheses so far have some holes in them and they have to do with the membranes, receptors, in neurons. But th- there are many holes and S- Stuart Hammer, being an sociologist, he-, he wrote a lot about these different hypotheses missing the, the mark and in the case of uh, tubulin, we know that anesthetics binds to tubulin, and this was independently confirmed by uh, the work of um, Professor Eckenhoff at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and tubulin and actin, I think, are the only two proteins which bind all anesthetic molecules known to us. And, and so that was mm. one interesting connection, but only correlation, not causation by any means, and we worked in these experiments that I mentioned to you uh, at Princeton and University of Central Florida with with two different anesthetic molecules, trying to see if they affect these processes uh, that I told you about the quantum um, absorption emission photon. I would say photon, but photons are quantum of light, so I guess I'm allowed to say quantum. Um, and. <laughs> And, and the results are not overwhelming but statistically significant. So that means that in both cases, um, we use isoflurane and atomidate. In both cases, the, the lifetimes of these effects are shorter. In other words, anesthetics uh, make this process, they abrogate to some degree. Uh, we haven't done um, dose response. Uh, ex- experiments where you change the concentrations of anesthetics. We try to use something close to physiological. So the the reduction in the um, in the lifetime is about between ten and twenty percent. So it's so so that's basically the, where we where we are at today.
1: Well, that, that's interesting. So this is an experiment that you know we don't. It doesn't prove anything per se, but it adds evidence. It was, a, it was a chance to uh, falsify one of the key um, assumptions behind the orchestrated or which, you know, it needs to show some sort of um, response, uh, or the theory it just doesn't work. So this is positive for the theory, I guess. Uh, what's next?
0: Exactly. And I should also say that uh, these experiments and this entire project has been funded by the Templeton World Charity Foundation. So, so we acknowledge that support, and the the stated objective was to falsify ORCO R, to demonstrate that it, there is no quantum. First of all, there is no quantum effect, and secondly, that there is no effect of anesthetics, and and we we were not able to falsify. It it does not necessarily support one hundred percent the uh, mm. the predictions of ORCO R, and I think we ended up believing that there is strong support for quantum effects, which are potentially long enough and potentially uh, large enough in, in in size, and also that they are affected by anesthetics in, in the correct um, direction. We don't know if this explains anything, but we say that this provides um, feasibility or plausibility of the assumptions. And in order to Uh, In order to go next, that's to answer your question, we need to do this in a living environment because that was under controlled laboratory conditions. We need to now test something like this for a single neuron that is alive. So that's the logical next step. And we're now writing up um, peer-reviewed papers and reports based on what we've done so far.
1: Wow. So that's a, an ambitious uh, next step.
0: Now we will be getting to the questions of, of you know, quantifying it. Namely, the answers that I, I provided so far to you are, I would say, largely qualitative. Yeah, uh, long times, l- large range, reduction of the effects by anesthetics. But now we, the question will be, if you have a neuron, is, um, is the the amount of photon absorption emission compatible with what we know about living cells? Do they actually, you know, we don't have lasers in our brains, of course. So, um, but now the question will be, where are these photons coming if they are, or if they are coming? Do we have a sufficient number of photons to create these quantum states and maintain them and so on and so forth? So, so the next group of experiments, whether we do it or somebody else, will have to be uh, bringing this close to biological reality. So,
1: so does this theory suggest that photons are somehow being captured in in biology and funneled through these uh, cells in in some coherent state? So these are this is these are ultraviolet photons you said, invisible photons that are participating in this process. Are they key to this? process? Both experiments deal with different frequencies. Tryptophan fluorescence
0: deals with ultraviolet photons. The delayed luminescence, where you have longer-lived uh, uh, states, deals with visible light. The question about uh, creating these kinds of photons in the human body um, is, is is an open question because we know only from observations of emission of photons from the surface of the human um, body, the brain, a very low intensity that has been measured and m- might not be enough, but we don't know if photons are emitted and reabsorbed inside the body and they never, what percentage of these photons are escaping to the environment, we don't know that. Uh, so it's quite possible that there is a sufficient number of photons generated internally and used for, uh, for this kind of um, cognitive activity uh, and that would actually go along with Albert Beuler's work, with, who who postulated actually two things. The first one was that mitochondria, by um, producing energy, biological energy, or transducing, I should say, biological energy, providing ATP molecules to drive all the metabolic processes, as a byproduct emit uh, emit photons, largely in the sort of range that could be, uh, you know, utilized for this. And and secondly, the question is, what is receiving them? You know, so here could be microtubules, but Albert Biller stated that in general, cells could um, have a, a perception mechanism for incoming photons in the form of centrioles. Uh, so that opens another direction, but I don't want to kind of muddy with the waters. <laughs> Just to say that, that the, the role of photons may also be um, multifactorial. One of which would be to to use as fast um, uh, mechanism of, of of some computation. Let's call it this way. Another might be uh, for recognizing uh, living systems in their uh, vicinity. For example, other cells. This, this is exactly what Albert Gula did. And there may be some other ones driving. Uh, driving other uh, biochemical reactions. So, biophotons is is, wow. is a subject which has a long history, but very little um, solid science behind it. So, I don't want to engage in in you know too many
1: hypotheses. The more I learn about this, the more I realize we'd have just just scratched the surface the the barest surface of the of the, the biology of just the individual cell. Uh, it's it's really amazing. I know uh, I had an earlier interview with a philosopher, uh, Arthur Reber, um, who was believed that cells were conscious. Basically, that the consciousness started in in cells and evolved. You know, billions of years ago, over you know the process of evolution is kind of a a trial and error. How do we? How do living cells best adapt to their environment? So they they learn things through trial and error over billions of generations, uh, and you know if there was something here, then it's very possible that you know biology has learned how to use it, and that's become uh, a basic element in in all cells. And so, if, if we posit that individual cells are conscious, I mean, and step taking a step back from the from all the all the confusing physics and <laughs> biology, you know, how does this? How do you move beyond individual cells to groups of individual cells creating a, a conscious mind? Yes,
0: I wish I knew the answer. And to where this do you question? stop? <laughs> no, but but I think. I think it's quite plausible that the, 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 connect, the glue, the, the connection, has to do with synchronization, some sort of synchronization of activity, synchronization of purpose, collective behavior. And and I think that's what our human bodies are very good at, because a lot of synchronization is taking place. And actually, Dr. Dogari from the University of Central Florida has performed such experiments, others as well where they, they demonstrated that cells synchronize their activities in, in cultures, you know, for example, w- without chemical signaling. Um, and, and Dr. Dogari performed experiments where groups of cells were of the same type. They were held in one part of the, um, uh, of the uh, petri dish, separated uh, by some kind of plastic wall, I believe, from another part, and one part was given nutrients and upregulated their activities, and the other didn't. And they also up- upregulate activities as if they were um, being sent signals from from those that received nutrients uh, to you know to uh, increase their uh, metabolism. And this is one example. Mm-hmm. There were similar examples by um, Daniel Fels from Basel in Switzerland, uh, who. Showed, um, I believe, cell division was synchronized in by physical means, not let's say you know chemicals uh, uh, being released and captured by the other ones, which also happens, I think. But but there are experiments which show. Uh, and so what is physical that can do this? And I would say electromagnetic. That's the most uh, the most obvious answer to it, uh, synchronization, and that probably also brings again Mike Levin's work believes in in electrical uh, you know um, synchronization and programming uh, of cells uh, so so i think we have a long long road ahead of us but we have to open our minds and allow <laughs> allow these new questions to be asked and gradually answered you, you know we worked with several um, frequencies of electromagnetic and electric fields and each of these frequencies provided different um, Um, insights, different effects were observed. We worked with um, terahertz, for example, and just published um, recently this year a paper showing that with terahertz radiation, which is much lower frequency, basically microwaves, um, you could uh, break microtubules into pieces over about 15 minutes. So, So where is this energy going? What's happening to this electromagnetic energy, which is below the the thermal uh, energy, KT, which is everywhere for free, more or less. So so that's one one, uh, example. With tryptophan, we looked at ultraviolet and, you know, nanosecond uh, states with with visible hundreds of milliseconds. So the question is now, how do we study this with very uh, systematic approach? And i think that also indicates that if not resonances that there are probably bands of frequencies which do different things almost like different communication channels you know dial on the radio you know you can ch- change from am to fm and go from kilohertz to m- megahertz and you, s- you listen to different stations
1: um, so I, I want to uh, i want to poke at one thing you just said um our microwave frequencies can break apart microtubules. This is, um, is this related to the ongoing controversy over uh, ill effects of RF fields? Uh, There's a, there's a large community of people who believe they're affected by RF fields in in health ways.
0: Well, yes, uh, possibly, but, 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 so the devil is in the detail. And, and the detail here here is twofold. Um, uh, number one is the um, duration of exposure. So we, we needed at least 15 minutes to see disassembly of microtubules. So that's a long t- time of exposure. And secondly, high intensity. And again, if we drop the intensity of this um, terahertz radiation below a certain threshold, nothing happened. So, so you see that... Critical parameters, and I think you can introduce a lot of fear in, into people's minds if you don't pay attention to the critical parameters. If it's low intensity, nothing will happen. And, and the third mm-hmm. thing is penetration depth. So this may not go under the skin, so to speak. You know, it has to be something which is exposed to it. And, of course, the deeper it goes, the lower the intensity, therefore... Even if the intensity of that particular radiation is high enough to do damage, but as it goes through the skin, it'll diminish, and nothing might happen. And by the way, terahertz radiation is used in airport scanners, you know, security scanners. So there was a lot of a lot of backlash against it, but you know, so far I don't see any evidence for some adverse effects. So you
1: carry your cell phone in your pocket with no problems? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe too much. Very interesting. So I I think we're we're kind of reaching the end of our time limit here, but uh, it's been really uh, enlightening to speak with you and learn about all of these interesting physical processes that are happening in the subcellular region that, that could be linked to consciousness. This is, I, I love, you know a lot of people don't like not knowing uh and not having certainty but i i love the the open-fieldness of this of this investigation and there's so much that we have yet to learn i this this is you know my favorite part of science is is when you know you can start putting out all of these interesting ideas and testing them and 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 doing real work this way uh, so really great to have you and to learn all about i have to look now into optical biophysics and <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I,
0: I couldn't agree more with, with your uh, comments about <coughs> being uh, uh, attracted to things which you don't know that's why I think I'm a scientist and, and I guess you're a scientist at heart if you're not doing science I'm not sure
1: but you should be yeah thank you uh, so before I, before I let you go uh, I'm going to send you a, a Rational View t-shirt for, for coming on the interview really appreciate you chatting with me and thank you